Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, May 11th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There is no good way to be fired, but there are worse ways than others. Out of a cannon, say. Or via the scrawl on CNN while you're in Los Angeles. Actually, that doesn't sound so bad. That's how I'd like to go. Via the scrawl on CNN. It means you've made it. Or at least had made it until the news moved across the wires. Here was Tom Nichols on Trumpcast last night about the indignity of being fired this way. The idea of, you know, having your bodyguard drop off a letter while you're in L.A. and you learn about it looking up at a TV, that, that's just going to... I think that will generate a lot of sympathy for Comey and a lot of kind of puzzled head scratching. Going to generate a lot of sympathy. Indeed, it did. The New York Times reporter Adam Goldman was on their podcast, The Daily. Trump didn't even have the decency to bring Comey into his White House and say, thank you for all the service you've done. I wish you the best of luck. We're going to go in different ways. No, instead, you know, he fired him when he wasn't even in town essentially abandoning him in L.A. It wasn't even clear if Comey was going to be able to take a, the government jet back. The truth seems to be Comey was widely respected within the FBI. You'd hope so, because he had a choice between party, country, and the FBI, and he chose the FBI. He threw an election into chaos for the explicit reason so that no one would ever, in the future, retroactively question the motives of the FBI. Which brings us to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Sean Spicer is off cavorting with foliage. So Sarah was trotted out to explain the president's thinking. Here's what she told Tucker Carlson last night, the first words she spoke on Fox. It's real simple. Uh, Director Comey had lost the confidence of the rake and file within the FBI. Uh, He'd certainly, I think, lost the confidence from members of both sides, uh, Republicans and Democrats in the House and the Senate. And frankly, most importantly, Tucker, he'd lost the confidence of the American people. This was a guy who was being questioned day after day after day whether or not he was capable of leading the FBI. I think we saw, based on his uh, testimony last week, he no longer was. And the uh, president was presented with a pretty uh, clear and direct and very strong recommendation by the deputy attorney general. That attorney uh, deputy made the recommendation. The president made a swift and decisive action and uh, let Director Comey go. So let's review the whole answer. Let's go with the last assertion first. The president decided after Rod Rosenstein briefed him. Trump contradicted that today in an interview with Lester Holt. Regardless of recommendation, I was going to fire Comey. Then the assertion that Comey had lost the faith of both parties wrong. As I detailed yesterday, no Democrat called for his firing by Trump once it became clear that he was investigating Trump. And last, that he lost the faith of the FBI itself. The acting director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, was before the Senate Intel Committee today. I don't believe there is a crisis of confidence in the leadership of the FBI. I suppose that's somewhat self-serving, and I apologize for that. (laughs) There was literally nothing in Sarah Huckabee Sanders' answer that wasn't directly contradicted by people in a direct position to know within moments of it being uttered. So on the show today, I spiel about some other stuff 
Trump said that has nothing to do with Comey, but we'll get there by talking about stuff he said about Comey. But first, so I just quoted McCabe there testifying before the Senate Intel Committee today. About a month ago, one of the best instances of expert testimony that I've ever seen happened before that exact committee. And we have put together what I think is a really interesting breakdown of how it came to be as we go inside the Intel studio. Clint Watts is a security expert. A, he's become a Russia expert. He's a uh, West Point graduate, a military man. He's a, fel- a fine fellow. In fact, he's a fellow at a few places like the Foreign Policy Research Institute and the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at GW. Uh, about a month ago, I praised him on this show for his excellent testimony before Congress. And he has become an, the kind of expert that, uh, you know, he tells Morning Joe what to think about the world. Hello, Clint. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So on this day, there were two strains that I wanted to get at. One is, I just want to talk about how you see the world and uh, what the Russians are trying to do. And then I want to break down a little bit your testimony before Congress, the first time I ever became aware of you. So the first thing I want to ask is, Trump as the beneficiary of uh, Putin's efforts to sway the election, I think it's pretty well documented. It wasn't that Putin was so in love with Trump. It's that he loathed Hillary Clinton and thought that a Trump election would be disruptive. So my question is, even though Donald Trump will say, well, he called me brilliant, which was a mistranslation of the Russian. Isn't it really an insult to Donald Trump that Putin chose him if Putin defines him as the one to disrupt America? If Trump took it that way. Yeah. I mean, Trump loves flattery. But in one sense, Putin is almost saying you're a dupe for my causes. And whether you know it or not, uh, I'm going to use you as an agent of influence amongst a population that I'm at, at odds with to try and steer them in a different direction. He did that very successfully. Uh, you can look at uh, GOP and Democrat polling about their views towards Russia. That's changed dramatically in just four years. That has to do with Putin's support of Trump and, and Trump therefore echoing that in terms of his policy. So in terms of the characterization, is he the Manchurian candidate? I don't think so. I think there's no evidence of that. But the other is, is he a useful idiot? means winningly or unwittingly, he's taking the praise of Putin and running with it and taking Russian compromising actions, theft of someone's personal emails and and many other government officials that are out of office, publishing those and then using them for media spin – I mean, he's using Russian active measures on his behalf to win an election. And as you pointed out once, people say, well, is it collusion? Of course it's collusion. That's collusion. That might not be breaking the law saying, hey, release these emails and they're released, but that's collusion. Uh, Absolutely. You look at it and why would you ever turn towards Russian propaganda as your source of information to counter a U.S. opponent in an election? That happened repeatedly. But here's my question. Even if we take, even if we have the kindest interpretation of Donald Trump, that he's a counterpuncher and he's instinctual and someone's helping him, he's going to take the help. Is it plausible that people within his campaign, either Manafort or later Bannon, who at least claims to have studied the tactics of Putin, wouldn't have known that this is what the Russians do? I mean, the Russians did this in Hungary. The Russians did this in other elections. Yes. Should we think maybe the Trump campaign didn't know that this was Russian, the Russian fingerprints? There's no reason to believe that because, I mean, Manafort's a campaign manager that worked in Ukraine before. This had happened in Ukraine. This had happened in Hungary. You saw elements of it in the Czech Republic. 
You saw it around Brexit. This Russian influence effort isn't just about the U.S. presidential campaign. It was a campaign of elections over a two-year period. It continues today. France and Germany are the, are the focus of their influence efforts now. This started long before the U.S. campaign. It's long after. Everyone knows that Russia is in the tank for certain candidates in these elections. Bannon seems to be fully aware of it. You've got General Flynn who's visiting Russia, showing up with Putin at a table. Yeah. You got Manafort who's a campaign manager who's been essentially backed by the Russians. You've got Carter Page who's on stage in Moscow citing propaganda that are business interests that are good for him. He seems much more tied to the Russians than the Trump campaign, though. It seems like the Trump campaign yes. just cited him once and, you know, may maybe he really never advised them, but he bragged that he was some Russian expert and advisor. Um, Mike Flynn, you mentioned, he would know. He takes money from RT, gives a speech, so that redounds poorly on Flynn. But also, he has Trump's ear. I mean, there is no chance that Mike Flynn doesn't know that Putin influenced, tried to influence the Czech election, did influence the Hungarian election, did it in the exact way that he's trying to influence the American election via his candidate, via the guy he's advising all the time. Particularly for a person who claims to be the far most expert on intelligence in the U.S. government. I mean, he headed the DIA, uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency. How could he claim, one, that he doesn't know about Russian influence, and two, that is an expert in counterintelligence, which he's also supposed to be, that he was being compromised by showing up at a table with Putin and taking money from a Russian state-sponsored news outlet. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. I think his motivation was around fighting jihadists mm -hmm. and fighting Iran. And right. that's, that's So in other words, leverage what help we're getting from, you know, perhaps this is Flynn's mindset is what you're saying. Look, Putin wants Trump to win. I think Trump winning would be a good thing for my number one issue, the jihadists. I'll take the help from this tainted source to get to where I want to be with the jihadists. He saw it as an ally and he wanted revenge against Obama. I mean, he was fired by the Obama administration. Yeah. Secretary Clinton was part of that. So this is his revenge against the people that spurned him. And I think that revenge is ultimately what, what led him to be – he essentially compromised himself. I mean the Russians offered. He didn't have to take it. Did the Russians get what they paid for? In terms of Flynn or in terms of no, – in terms of uh, Trump being elected. No, it's going to backfire ultimately because they influenced in such a way and in such an overt way. Hacking is covert. Influence is over. You can't hide your hand in influence ultimately. And it's not influence. And so what you're going to see is, and it, you're already starting to see this uh, you know, in some of the media reporting, is Putin can't understand why he's not getting what he wants from the United States now that Trump's elected. There's been enough pushback, I think, on the Russian issue just over the last two to three months that for Trump to take an overt Russian position or ally with Russia in the way he initially conceived it, it would play to the – the conspiracies of everyone's greatest fears. Is it a shame what happened to the definition of fake news, how it's been co-opted and now doesn't mean anything? Yeah, I mean, fake news is used by uh, both sides now for anything I don't want to hear or don't like. Yeah. And, and so that's going to make it difficult to solve this problem, especially when the president routinely says you are fake news or I don't like this outlet because they don't speak favorably of me, so they are fake news. It makes it that much more difficult to build a cohesive plan if you ever want to counter Russian active measures. You can't start if your president cites random sources basically off Twitter, comes up with allegations about his own people that he's in charge of that aren't true. Trump Tower is wiretapped. There's no evidence to support that. If he wanted to know that, he's in charge of the country. He could have called the FBI director or the NSA director and asked them that. He didn't. Fires it out on Twitter. 
as long as he keeps using Russian active measures, there's no way to counter it. And that doesn't even speak to the policy issues. We don't have a Russia policy right now. If you're in the U.S. government, I couldn't tell you what our stance is on Russia. And you can't go against Russian active measures if Russia is putting out anti-EU, anti-NATO, anti-immigration. If you look at the Trump White House, they are anti-EU, anti-NATO, anti-immigration. There is no counter to a message that you're also repeating. When I first saw the phrase fake news being used to describe things like bots and kids in Macedonia just trying to earn a buck by inventing fake stories, I said to myself, ooh, this isn't a good label. I said to myself, this is going to be co-opted. Okay, fine. So it's no one's fault. But does that get in the way of Americans really realizing what what it's trying to convey and being alarmed by it? It makes them not understand the impact of foreign countries and their influence operation. The Russian model is there is no such thing as information. It's a war on information. There is no such thing as fact. There is no truth. It's all perceptions. And whoever has the best perception or the one that you like the most is the one that wins. And so if you believe that there is no such thing as fact, that means you can be co-opted or coerced into almost anything. That is the Russian model. And you're even hearing that repeated in the United States now. Who stands to gain is the phrase the Russians will use. I've started seeing that or hearing that from Americans. Who stands to gain from this? If you hear that, that means they bought into the Russian system, whether they realize it's the Russian system or not. And I'm hearing a lot of whataboutism. Right. What about it? What does it matter? You know, old Soviet KGB lines. Now it'd be, you know, Russian lines that you would hear, which is there is no fact or fiction. There's just perception around it. Now I want to turn to your testimony uh, of a little over a month ago. I was gripped by it, by your comportment, the knowledge, the phrasing, even on a phrase level. And I think that probably the phrase that got the most play was follow the trail of dead Russians. There's been more dead Russians in the past three months that are tied to this investigation who have assets and banks all over the world. Uh, They are dropping dead even in Western countries. So let's just start there. Yeah. Did you practice that in the mirror beforehand? That one you? I did not. Really? I, of all of them, I, there were some that I had prepared because I had three or four things I wanted to make sure I communicated. Trail of Dead Russians just came off the top of my head. That one did. And it, it's effective for a lot of reasons, but you know, there's a tangible quality to it and, and it becomes real to us. Right. And I was trying to emphasize that too in other things. So there were certain sets of facts that I memorized. I mean, I knew them intuitively, but- mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to recall it. So I, I think writing the testimony out, I wrote probably four times what I said there. Mm-hmm. I knew I only had five minutes, which is extremely short. But I also think most uh, people that go to testify are not giving the government officials the information they want. They're instead trying to show how smart they are oftentimes when they go in. Or that they have all the information. Well, I also think that there's the they have the tendency to use hedge words, and they don't want to have made a mistake. To right. be sure, to be fair, now you have to understand. You are much more direct. I don't think you said anything that you wouldn't stand by, and yet there was a directness to your testimony. I'm guessing that that was a strategy to some degree. Yeah, I think that goes back to my government time. I mean, most of my time uh, coming up through the military, they don't have time to waste on me. They need critical information. When they ask me what I think, they want to know what I think and why. And so you better be specific about it. So when I prep, you know, the night before, the days before, I write out my testimony. I immediately start truncating it down. And if I can't memorize it, you know, in five or six points, then I know I'm, I'm not on track and I don't know what I want to say. So for one day of testimony, how much prep do you do? 
I would say I wrote on two different nights, probably two, three hours. You know, I was trying to figure out how to write it. I did not want it to be uh, the typical college thesis kind of testimony. So I wanted it to tell a story because I felt like active measures is so complicated. If you don't, if you can't tell a story around that, it becomes a PowerPoint briefing that's super dull and no one can track on it. Yeah. So I wanted to mix and match story with data, story with data, story with data. And then I also knew how I wanted to answer questions. And that's probably all I did the last night and day. I went through what we can do about active measures and things that I wanted to drive home. I did want to talk about why the president makes Russian active measures so effective. That was new. I've heard pundits say it. I've not heard it sort of introduced in a formal setting like that. Here is the danger of what President Trump is doing. During that moment, I was actually trying to recall, and I actually cut myself short. I had, I think, 15 examples, you know, that I- Donald Trump uh, or his campaign repeating Russian propaganda. He or his campaign doing Russian active measures on behalf of Russia. I had at least 15. Couple specifics. You cited a few times your military experience and analogized to it, as you did to me here. It's like when I was in artillery, firing artillery everywhere. Once they get in a break, once they get a break in the wall, they flood in. Um, That's who you are. Of course, that's what you're going to reference. But was that done by design to sort of say, look, I know I am here uh, essentially giving some valid and sourced critiques of how the president operated, but also know that, you know, I'm military through and through? A little bit. I mean, I thought it was a good analogy and that's how I learned it. And so I thought that was a good visual or a way to explain it because information warfare is a type of warfare, but I, you got to have a visual around it. And these people that are just coming into it and trying to get their heads around it oftentimes just see it as political campaign kind of messaging and like, oh, let's yeah. red state, blue state, let's get everybody emotional about some topic and spread this message. That's kind of garbage. You know, when We've been doing information warfare, Al-Qaeda, ISIS. That's where I was working on it at. Um, We have a PSYOPs unit out of Fort Bragg. Right. I visited it. It's warfare. And this is a warfare approach, an information warfare approach. One, the Russians do much better than Americans and understand much better. Well, they have to. I mean, all all this stuff about how crafty the Russians are, when you don't have the best hand, you have to, you know, pull out more stops at the card table. Absolutely. And they quickly recognize cyber as a domain for information warfare that they could have never achieved this during the Soviet era. You know, we studied it in school or in the military from the Soviet perspective, and it never worked because to get somebody to write a communist newspaper in New York City, you'd have to have an agent, you know, working with a political party and – How do you get the distribution out? And, you know, man, social media is a dream come true for this. You can sit on the other side of the world. You can identify your target audience. You can see what their grievances are. You can pump them content by minute, you know, that appeals to them. You can see what works and quickly readjust. It's pretty amazing how effective it can be. Another thing you did during your testimony is you frequently mentioned uh, the senators because everyone who ran for president had this done against them to some extent. You mentioned Rubio, who was there. You mentioned Cruz. That must have been done by design, as in this could happen to you. Yeah, I wanted to stress that it was not a partisan issue. I felt like it was important for me to drive home to them that Russian active measures didn't stop on Election Day, that this is going to continue that it wasn't just the Democrats that got targeted, it was also the Republicans. And that the Republicans should be wary because if they start to press on Trump or turn Trump against Russia, they're going to be the ones that are in the crosshairs. And you're already starting to see that a little bit. 
At one point, and this was probably the second most widely quoted thing that you say, you talked about how for the first time ever, you're not sure that anybody has your back. What was your intent on going on that little riff? I was trying to point out that it was quite possible that I would walk out the door that day and I would be attacked by the White House or by the inner circle as being some sort of shill for Clinton, um, that I've got some sort of ax to grind or whatever it might be. I was trying to, again, emphasize that this is – if it's really about Americans and Americans first, where is our unity? Part of the Russian strategy is divided they stand, divided they fall. Mm-hmm. That's really what they believe. If you look at everything they're trying to do, break up NATO, break up the EU, break up the United States in terms of support, when people are divided, they can go one-to-one. And to think that after all my time in the military, all my time working FBI, Intel, or whatever, I wasn't worried about Putin – uh, and cyber attacks. That already happened to me anyways. I was more concerned that I would walk out and it would be politicians that would turn on me. So you knew that these were things you wanted to say. You anticipated what the counterpunch would be and you deployed measures to sort of uh, denude the power of that counterpunch. Yeah. I, I mean, and I still got some of those counterpunches, you know, when I walked out the door mm-hmm. and I will. You know, if I appear on one media outlet or another, you know, I'm either a shill for Clinton uh, you know, it's funny because during the Obama days, I was a war hawk um, right winger because I uh, I was okay with the use of drones. So I was considered like a psychopath in counterterrorism circles. And so you're going to get that no matter what. You know, people aren't going to look by it. But I was trying to drive home that Russian active measures is a long-term threat to us aside from this one election. And that if they play into the partisanship of this, you know, coming out of that intel committee – we are just doing Russia's work for them. And it, it is still working today, by the way. My last observation, I think maybe the most important one, the reason the testimony was so good was because the senators did their job and they, both Republican and Democrat, it seems to me, were honestly interested in what you had to say, didn't use the time to give a little speech and then ask a rhetorical question, were receptive to the information you gave, were even egging you on, tell me more. It seemed like an ideal for what, how you would want uh, the people conducting the hearing to be. Yeah, I was refreshed. I mean, democracy worked the way it was designed that day. Democrat and Republican, it didn't matter who it was in the room, was focused on the issue at hand. I did not expect that going in, and I don't know that I've even gotten that entirely on other times I've testified. But I felt really good about it. I actually felt pretty pumped up when I left there to see how the senators handled it on both sides of the aisle. Clint Watts, Foreign Policy Research Institute Fellow, Center for Cyber and Homeland Security Fellow, Expert Russia, Terrorism, you know, star C-SPAN. Thanks, Clint. (laughs) Thank you. And now the spiel. Donald Trump today told Lester Holt of the firing of James Comey, it had nothing to do with the Russians. It was just about Comey's personal characteristics, including some traits that a Trump simply cannot abide. He's a showboat. He's a grandstander. The FBI has been in turmoil. You know that. I know that. The accusation is grandstanding. Here now is the accused. Lordy, that would be really bad. And here now, about the charge of grandstanding, is the accuser. Look at this! Donald Trump! Donald Trump! Donald Trump! Donald Trump! Oh my God! 
But even though he did shave Vince McMahon's hair, he did not say Lordy. Trump further complicated his own PR team's efforts to spin the firing of the decision based solely on the recommendation of the assistant attorney general when he told Lester Holt, regardless of recommendation, I was going to fire Comey. But now let us go from the timing of Trump to priming the pump, a phrase Trump says he invented. Priming the pump, that is when you go furniture shopping with a lady, buy some fantastic furniture. You know, I think he's mistaken. The phrase Trump invented was, I moved on the pump like a bitch. That economist transcript, this is where the priming the pump assertion came from. It's generally wackadoo. In fact, the first answer, the first question was, what is Trumponomics and how does it differ from standard Republican economics? Oh boy, let's go through it. Trump, well, it's an interesting question. I don't think it's ever been asked quite that way. But it really has to do with self-respect as a nation. It has to do with trade deals that have to be fair and somewhat reciprocal, if not fully reciprocal. And I think that's a word you're going to see a lot of because we need reciprocality in terms of trade deals. You know what? I hope that is not a word we see a lot of, reciprocality, because it's not a word. Reciprocity is the word. That is the word that Trump invented, reciprocality. Fake words. Failing mainstream dictionaries. (laughs) Same answer. This is the same answer to the first question. He just, he's on a roll. I don't know who the people are that would put us into a NAFTA, which was so one-sided. Both from the Canadian standpoint and the Mexico standpoint, so one-sided. I don't think it can be both. But now we get to the priming the pump exchange. I just want you to hear this whole thing. It's amazing. Trump. You understand the expression, prime the pump. The Economist, yes. Trump, we have to prime the pump. The Economist, it's very Keynesian. Strangely, Trump does not take that bait and hold forth on the economic principles of John Maynard Keynes. Instead, he answers, we're the highest tax nation in the world. Have you ever heard that expression before for this particular type of an event? The Economist, priming the pump? Trump, yeah, have you heard it? The Economist. Yes. Have you heard that expression used before? Because I haven't heard it. I mean, I just, I came up with it a couple of days ago and I thought it was good. It's what you have to do. The Economist, it's Trump. Yeah, what you have to do is you have to put something in before you could get something out. So I'm not sure if he was really saying he came up with priming the pump. He's definitely admitting that he's never heard the phrase priming the pump. I think maybe he was trying to say it came up before, but of course the pronoun it doesn't hold the appeal of the pronoun I for him. Anyway, the interview goes on from there and he's asked about the Democrats insistence that he release his taxes before they vote on what for him could be a personally massive tax cut. He rejected the idea of releasing his taxes. He's under routine audit, you know, which of course he reminded the economist. But then he said, you know, at a certain point, that meaning releases his taxes is something I will consider, but I would never consider it as part of a deal. The economist, right, got that. Trump, I would never do it. That would be, I think that would be unfair to the deal. It would be disrespectful of the importance of this deal for him to release his taxes would disrespect the deal. And you know, this is a man who is all about honor and respect, recently saying he would be honored to meet with Kim Jong-un. And as far as disrespect, 
He's very motivated by avoiding disrespect. I dug this tweet up of his from 2011. I did not believe it was real. Maybe you've heard it. I checked it a few times. It very much seems to be from the official Donald Trump Twitter account in 2011. We will end on this tweet. Barney Frank looked disgusting, nipples protruding in his blue shirt before Congress. Very, very disrespectful. And that's it for today's show. Let me list all the people who put it together. Mary Wilson, Chris Berube, they're the producers. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. I say that quickly because I wanted to get to this. Today we had news of a breakup. The lawyers, Salino and Barnes, are breaking up. Salino came at Barnes, Barnes having nowhere to turn, possibly jabbing the same digit into a phone over and over trying to get legal help. 888888, no answer. Okay, 555555. Oh no, I got a fictional setting. Salino and Barnes, injury attorneys, 1888888. They are a mainstay of New York area advertising. They advertise in a billboard near my home. And there is one word on the billboard except for Salino and Barnes, injury attorneys, 1888. And the word is injured, question mark. Not wrongfully injured. Not injured because someone done you bad. Just injured. Got an ailment? We could get you money. Crick in the neck, janky knee, letter in the mailbox, googly eye. One eight 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 eight. It was Salino and Barnes who taught us all that there should be no setback in life that is so minor that someone can't be sued over it. And the next time I am going to call that number, I will honor it. As with the missing man formation in an Air Force flyover or the riderless horse at a state funeral, I am going to leave the last eight off because that's the eight for savings. The gist. Umperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening. And I should note, and I don't say this enough, that uh, we have a Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash slate gist. We put every show up there. We invite you to comment. And if you comment, I should or perhaps will comment back or track you down because people use real names on Facebook. So, you know, there is a cost perhaps of popping off. You got to consider this stuff clearly and carefully. Facebook.com slash slate gist. Check that out.